I refer to uh, cramping kind of like a recipe. So my recipe for cramping might be very different than Steph's recipe or Alan's recipe for cramping. So to say the cause of cramping singular, like there's a single thing that causes it, I think is a very oversimplification of a very complex phenomenon. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists, and triathletes ask. It's the stuff you talk about in your training session, or it might be in your recovery at the cafe. Uh, And what we do is we break it down. We invite a guest expert or athlete to add their perspective. So today, it's episode 45A, How Do I Stop Cramping? And we're lucky enough to be joined by Professor Kevin Miller from Texas State University and what we're going to do is we'll discuss what we know about cramping and why it's so difficult to figure out the cause and I'm sure a lot of our listeners um, are frustrated by by cramps in their events. What role nutrition does or doesn't play in cramping prevention and management and we'll address common beliefs about nutrition, hydration and cramping. So Um, Very likely to talk about sodium and magnesium as just some examples. And then what we're aiming to do is um, finding a strategy moving forward to help you reduce your risk of cramping. But before we get stuck into all of that, um, I want to find out about how Al is going. (laughs) I'm all right. Thanks, Steph. Um, Just admiring your ceiling before. You're in a different room (laughs) to where you normally record this, but that's all right. (laughs) Um, it, it was funny because we were saying that you've got the like the wood panelled ceiling it reminds me of like a ski chalet or something, which just reminded me. I was saw on the, um, on the web just over the weekend a video came through. Someone had been hanging out at one of the checkpoints, one of the final checkpoints at UTMB, so Ultra Trail Mont Blanc for the non ultra runners out there, kind yep. of the the pinnacle of the sport. Uh, and it was one, I think it was only about fifteen or twenty k's from the finish. And they were sitting there filming the top guys coming through. So Killian Jornet obviously won the race, but the top five guys who came through and they had a good look at their nutrition and what they were doing at each checkpoint. That's a fascinating mm-hmm. insight into what they were doing, but almost also how much carbohydrate they were consuming. And what it seems like is, you know, we've talked in the past how carbohydrate intakes in pro cycling have really increased over the last 10 years you know they're targeting sort of up to 90 100 grams an hour in some cases of carbohydrate and it seems like that's really filtering into ultra running now as well and most of the top guys at UTMB were aiming for sort of 90 grams an hour or more some even as high as 120 grams an hour so that's Mm. probably something that we don't normally associate with ultra running but it's certainly starting to happen at the elite level guys are able to train their gut to tolerate that quantity and logistically get that in. But what was also interesting, I think, was the variety of different ways they were doing that. You know, some people, obviously this was very late in the race, mind you, some people were still very much normal foods. They had, you know, baked potatoes. One of them had, I think it was like 
rice and sweet potato like as a puree, almost like a soup. Mm. Um, but then other people were very much, um, you know, drinks, gels, lollies, and that was pretty much it. So it did vary a lot from person to person, but I think the, the common factor there was going for these really high carbohydrate intakes seems to be becoming the norm at the elite level in those sort of ultra running events. Mm. So, yeah, yep. it was really interesting. Yeah. And yep. how about you? I got two of my um, reviewers' comments back for the papers ah, um, nice. of the thesis. It literally happened yep. like I got one in the evening and then the next morning the other one. And I think it's the most positive feedback hour that I've had from reviewers. You nice, know, like you, nice. sometimes when you read those, you're like, oh, it's the end of the world, like it's not being accepted, but it actually is. And always it improves the papers with the with the feedback anyway. So I've got a got a crack into that, but that was really lovely to um to get that feedback. Yep. So these are the papers, not the thesis itself. No, not the thesis itself. No, I, I think that would still be about eight weeks or so behind because yep. there was a bit of delay for getting all the assessors. So yeah, but that was that was super cool to to have and Otherwise, I've been doing um, a lot of handy, um, I'm going to say handy person jobs on the weekend. My um, dad was down, so I didn't actually let him have too much of a holiday and got stuck into the gym outside. So it's all set up. So there's no excuses if it's too cold. You know, we set that up with a heater and everything. So yeah, yep. But you, Al, you, for your study, you, you finished that. So have you cracked into the results? Uh, not a lot yet, actually, because I've been getting some data in from a different study, which is not a, uh-huh. a lab study, it's a meta-analysis, so it's looking at all the existing papers on a particular topic. So I think I mentioned this a few months ago, um, doing a meta-analysis on pre-exercise hyperhydration. So this is using things like mm-hmm. glycerol or sodium loading pre-exercise and looking at what impact that has on performance, because there's a lot of data out there that's positive around it, a lot that is not so much so Myself and Chris Irwin, who's a previous guest on the podcast, um, have teamed up to do a meta-analysis on this. So uh, we've just, well, Chris has done all the, the data bits. He's the, the guy doing all the stats. Um, and he's just sent through all the stuff for that the other day. So I've been having a look at all that data and starting to interpret that and make sense of it. So, yeah, a bit more writing to do on that one. Um, but hopefully we'll get that submitted and, and, fingers crossed, published by the end of the year, which would be nice. Yeah, that'll be, yeah, super cool. Social media shout-outs and questions. Yeah, we've had a bit um, happening. Yeah, we have had a little bit. Uh, on Instagram, we had Jane Johnson, who I believe is a runner in your hometown of Adelaide, Steph. So we've got the mention in nice <laughs> and early. Um, and she was talking about last week's podcast with Mary Mitchell, also from Adelaide. And Jane said, loved it, Steph. Thanks for revealing the champ's secrets. There you go. Uh, and we also had Maddie Kelly, who is another runner who runs with the Runners One group, which is the group run by Izzy Bat Doyle, who's also one of our previous podcast guests. And obviously, Maddie is therefore in your hometown of Adelaide, Steph. It's all the <laughs> Adelaide people are coming out of the woodwork now. I know, um, flooding us. Yes. Uh, and Maddie had a question that she'd like answered on the podcast. So she said she'd like to have a look at are nutritional labels useful or not for athletes? And if not, why? So that's an interesting question and we can certainly have a mm. look at that at some stage in the future. That would definitely be a good one. Thank you, Maddie. Yeah. Uh, we also had a new review on Apple Podcasts 
So obviously the the ratings, the five-star ratings are anonymous, so we don't know who does those. Um, but we did get a new review from Sydney Willis, who we mentioned the other week on the podcast. He's a running coach up in Townsville. And he said, as a running coach, I really appreciate this podcast. The content answers many questions athletes and coaches have and some that we haven't even thought about. And the guests are insightful. Big five stars. Thank you. So, yeah, big thank you to you, Sid. Yeah, awesome. So you've been getting feedback coming in left, right and centre. What's been happening? Mm, yeah, well, um, I get insight into Mary's um, Facebook um, account, which she obviously shared the episode. And uh, yeah, it was just really good to see. She actually had a lot of positive feedback on that. And um, I can see when I see the feedback that a lot of them are um, her fellow triathletes. Um, so yeah, Gavin said, fascinating insight into a champion. Cameron, um, great listening, Mary. Thanks for sharing. Rhiannon, great listen, Mary. And um, again, the same, Jane. It was very interesting regarding Mary's episode. And I know that all of them um, are triathletes. And some of them, maybe they're also doing running now. I'm not sure. And then we also had our, who you and I both know is Erin Colbatch. And she, yeah, just said, congrats on our podcast. She also really enjoyed listening to Mary's episode. Uh, wonderful to hear Mary's wise words of wisdom. She's a great ambassador for all of us master athletes. And um, one of Mary's key nutrition and life skills is her focus when it matters and a relaxed but thoughtful approach at other times. Alan and Steph, well done on your podcast as always. So, yeah, thank you very much, Erin. Um, glad you're still talking to Alan after he puts you through the five-hour trauma. Hey, you're still talking to me as well. <laughs> Only just. <laughs> oh, because you have to. Yeah. <laughs> And just a reminder that you can contact us on social media at The Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. We always love to hear from you, particularly if you have a suggestion around a particular question that you'd like answered on the podcast, as Maddie said through this week as well. Today's episode, Al, we are up to episode 45A. How do I stop cramping? And we're lucky enough to be joined by Professor Kevin Miller. Um, I'll let you do the intro to, to Kevin. Yeah, so Kevin is a exercise scientist, I think, or athletic trainer, as they're often referred to in the US. I'm not sure exactly what the distinction is there um, with the, the term athletic trainer, but he's, or he was previously at Central Michigan University for several years, but he's just moved to the other side of the US, to Texas State University. So we'll hear a bit about that move uh, as we get into the interview with him. But his work has been mainly around the issues of heat stress, particularly in American footballers. But the other main area that he has studied extensively is what we call exercise-associated muscle cramps. So basically the cramping that we're talking about today. Some of you may have heard Kevin's name before, particularly for some of the research he did, some of the early research in pickle juice about a decade ago. And certainly, if you follow Australian rules football, you'll see all the players at the moment coming into finals or playoffs um, on the sidelines, having pickle juice on the bench. Very common sight at just at the moment. Um, but he has continued that sort of research into muscle cramping since that time. And last year, actually, just published probably the most comprehensive overview of muscle cramping that's in the literature. And he's come up with a new model that explains all the different related factors. So in the past, there were sort of these two different sort of opposing models, if you like, and he's sort of been able to bring those two together, sort of see how they can kind of fit. 
and try and um, explain to athletes and health professionals working with athletes what are the underlying causes of cramping and spoiler alert it's complicated I guess is the the main thing to come from that. Um, he also in that paper had a series of questions that helped to uh, help individuals to identify the particular risk factors or issues that might be related to their specific cramping and trying to find out or figure out the patterns associated with it and what are the things that potentially could be addressed for those particular individuals. And that's something that we'll address more of in the next episode when we have our athlete guest, we will actually run through those questions with them so you can get a feel for what that looks like. And hopefully that's something you can take away and apply for yourself. Awesome. Let's uh, crack into it. Kevin Miller, welcome to the Long Munch. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so firstly, you've just moved for work um, from Central Michigan University to Texas State University, which is just a, a little bit of a distance across the US from north to, to south. Um, firstly, how was the move and how are you settling into the southern US um, climate? <laughs> Yeah, the southern U.S. is very different than Michigan. Um, <laughs> when we moved, the temperature was about 105 degrees Fahrenheit for a solid 50-plus days. I think we were one day away from setting the record for Texas for yeah. number of consecutive days above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So as a heat illness researcher, it's a great opportunity to work at Texas State University, <laughs> a, a state that... Uh, <laughs> struggles in the United States with heat illness. And so mm -hmm. my two areas of expertise uh, revolve around exercise associated muscle cramping, which is what we're going to talk about today, and then exertional heat stroke. And mm -hmm. Texas as a state struggles uh, very much so with both heat illnesses and is the number one state in the country or in the United States for exertional heat stroke death. And so mm -hmm. from a perspective as a heat illness scientist, as an athletic trainer, I feel like I can do a lot of good work here and hopefully save some more lives down in Texas. So it's a great opportunity to be at Texas State. Yeah, yeah. That's a really positive way of thinking, living in the heat. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, so I'm assuming like most people in exercise and sports science, you've got a bit of a sporting background. Um, what, what was it for you? I do. So for, for most of my young adult life, I, I played soccer or uh, football. And so yep. having played uh, pretty, uh, pretty competitively uh, for most of my uh, young adult life, I would suffer from exercise associated muscle cramping. And I can remember days in the summer where we would have tournaments of playing two and even three matches a day, just getting back to the hotel and walking up steps and my quadriceps would cramp. And then as I lunged for the right quadricep, then the left quadricep would cramp and then the hamstrings went and then just falling down uh, <laughs> the steps, just being in complete uh, lower extremity cramping. And so uh, I do have the, the history of the typical kind of athlete transition to sports scientist, healthcare provider in sports medicine background that so many of us share. Mm, yep. Yep. And um, yeah, so today we're discussing, as you mentioned, exercise-associated muscle cramps, um, which we'll just shorten um, for ease to, to cramps for today. 
But was there any other reason that you got interested in researching that area apart from yourself experiencing the, the cramping? What's kind of kept your interest in the area? Great question. So the, the thing that really piqued my interest as an undergraduate college student was the dialogue that people had at the time was of such confidence that cramping is due to dehydration or electrolyte loss. But physiologically, as you look at uh, what happens to the body as we become dehydrated and as we sweat and those types of things, there was this oxymoronic kind of argument where, yeah, we lose water. And as a result, our blood electrolyte concentrations increase. And yet people are saying that cramping is due to a loss of sodium and electrolytes. And so it was this kind of interesting complexity uh, along with this hubris of, well, of course, it's due to this. And so that kind of paradox of uh, what we thought we knew at the time versus what we know physiologically is happening was very interesting to me. And it was an area that not a whole lot of science had been done at the time. And so there was a lot of room for growth and a lot of place where I could make an impact. And so those things combined kind of spurred my interest along with my own personal history and the things that I was told as an athlete uh, provided some really great foundation for further inquiry into this area. Mm, yeah, yeah. And um, so before we get into exactly what causes cramping and, and what we can do about it, it's probably worth going over how researchers actually study cramping in athletes. As you mentioned, it's an area that actually hasn't had that much research um, considering how common it is and how much of a um, massive issue it is for people. Why do you think that's the, the case? Well, I think a lot of times science follows money or funding. Yeah. <laughs> and so there isn't a whole lot of funding in studying exercise associated muscle cramping. Uh, as far as you know, heat illnesses go, it doesn't kill anybody. And so as a result, there seems to be less fundability for serious study of the condition. Now, uh, we're talking about exercise-associated muscle cramping today, but we do know that cramps are a symptom or even a sign of other underlying pathologies like Parkinson's or diabetes, hypothyroidism, Machado Joseph's disease. There's a whole bunch of different types of disorders that will produce cramping, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the otherwise healthy person that exercises and then gets these involuntary painful contractions during or after exercise. And so a lot of scientists, I think, have tried to approach cramping kind of tangentially through the lens of these other diseases in order to get enough funding to study these types of things. But the majority of research that's been done on cramping has kind of attacked the problem from a quality of life standpoint. So we know that there are other types of cramping like nocturnal cramping or pregnancy related cramping that impact people's quality of sleep uh, from a nocturnal variety. It tends to impact older folks above the age of 65. And so people have attacked those types of cramps because they tend to be more fundable. Uh, the exercise associated muscle cramp variety, they're uncomfortable. They're inconvenient, but usually they're not killing anybody. And so as a result, there's not a whole lot of funding for it. So I think scientists tend to navigate towards areas of higher funding, like the exertional heat strokes or those types of things where they can make a, a bigger impact because people's lives are actually at stake. Yep. Yep. 
And um, so how can we actually study cramping, given that, as you've just mentioned, there's that element of unpredictability about it? Yeah, it's pretty hard. Um, <laughs> if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, I suppose. Uh, the approach that was taken, I would say, from the early 1900s through the early 2000s was to study the actual athlete or to go to marathons or competitions, triathlons. Uh, Martin Schwellness out of Cape Town uh, did a lot of work in triathlon type settings, actually studying people who got exercise associated muscle crampings during or after races. And so they would go actually study athletes. The trouble with that kind of model, and it's still something that we do today, um, but the trouble with that model is cramping is unpredictable. And so from a science standpoint, I could attend every football practice or uh, competition, and I might not ever see any muscle cramping. Mm -hmm. And so from a time standpoint, there's a, a real challenge to studying the phenomenon that way. Uh, so we transitioned to using some of these laboratory techniques like electrical stimulation or even magnetic stimulation of peripheral nerves to try and cause muscle cramps to occur in muscles. And then we study interventions or prevention strategies that way. Uh, every model has its pros and cons. Uh, it's great to go study exercise associated muscle cramping and real athletes. The downside to that model, like I said, is sometimes it just doesn't happen. But even when it does happen, uh, I think a lot of times scientists, depending on their, their preconceived biases, will look at those athletes and try to say, well, the cramping must be due to this one thing that I'm interested in, like dehydration, <laughs> or it must be due to this one thing like fatigue. And so uh, that early 1990s, 2000 literature is riddled with lots of studies on triathlete, uh, triathletes, marathoners, American football players, uh, those types of things. And then again, depending on the author's bias, it's, well, it must be due to dehydration or it must be due to fatigue. And so we get this kind of confounding factor of lots of things happen to the body physiologically besides just those two things. And mm -hmm. so it becomes very difficult as a scientist to tease out cause and effect when you have such a complex phenomenon occurring in the body like exercise. So uh, laboratory science has kind of evolved probably, I would say, in the early 2000s to do more of this electrical stimulation technique where we, we stimulate peripheral nerves with uh, or without nerve blocks to, you know, to try to take out the central nervous system as much as possible. And so these kind of 1990s, early 2000s studies kind of looked at the, try to tease out the kind of cause and effect nature of cramping, trying to figure out, is there a central nervous component to it? Is it a muscle component? Is it a little bit of both? Is it the peripheral nervous system? And so with these types of techniques, we can try to tease out some of those uh, physiological phenomena that are really, really difficult to study in actual live human. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, how confident can we be that that electrical stimulation model actually reflects that type of cramping um, and the underlying causes that athletes experience in the real world? How, how well do you think it reflects that? Yeah, I would say that's probably the number one criticism of the literature that talks about exercise associated muscle cramping, but uses an electrical stimulation model. Uh, from a validation standpoint, when you have an electromyogram or you have muscle activity of somebody who is experiencing a 
volitional cramp or one that they maybe induce themselves or one that's done with exercise versus one that's induced with magnetic stimulation or electrical stimulation, they look very, very similar. You're getting high amplitude, high frequency tracings in all cases. And so when it comes to the final product, we see the muscle and the joints do the same thing, right? They're involuntarily contracting, they're painful. And so if you just brought somebody into me while they were experiencing a cramp, I probably couldn't tell you just looking at them whether or not it was an electrical stimulated induced cramp, a magnetically stimulated induced cramp, an exercise induced cramp, or a volitionally induced cramp. So the tracing itself and the evidence that we have that we often use to verify is this person actually cramping or not, they all look the same. So from that point, the end product, I would say the validity is there for. Now, the, the tricky bit is that before part, right? So yeah. when we do the electrical stimulation model, like a lot of the, the studies in my lab, what we've tried to do is kind of set the stage for the cramping. So we've had people exercise to try and prepare the body physiologically for what an athlete might be experiencing. But then we do the electrical stimulation model to try and simulate the the brain activity or the central nervous activity that is causing that muscle to become overexcitable and then cramp. Mm. And so a lot of the stuff that I've done in my lab has focused not so much on maybe the physiological cause, but on the treatment side of thing and the prevention side of thing and looking to see what impacts someone's susceptibility to cramping. So like I said, every, every model has got its pros and cons. I don't think there's a perfect model yet. One of the things that I really struggled with as a, a PhD student was this exact uh, limitation of how can you be sure that what you're seeing is the same thing during exercise. And the only thing I could really think of at the time was, well, it'd be really great to exercise someone to the point of muscle cramp and then biopsy them. And then, mm. you know, take a biopsy from somebody who is cramping due to some other type of induction technique and actually compare the muscle physiology to see, is it truly valid? The thing that's really tough though, is if anybody's who ever worked with biopsies, you need that person to be where you're under sterile conditions. You need that person relaxed. And mm -hmm. that is the exact opposite of everything that occurs during a muscle cramp, right? They're, they're high anxiety, mm -hmm. high stress, they're pained. Mm -hmm. uh, the muscle is very firm. And so getting a biopsy needle into a crampy muscle is, is an almost impossible task. Yeah. And so we have to really kind of rely on these electrical tracings like with EMG to really kind of compare and contrast what we see in lab settings versus athletic settings. And like I said, the good news is, is the end product, they look very, very similar. So from a validity standpoint, I'm comfortable with saying what we're seeing on the input side is really, really good. It's just, you know, that's setting the stage. That's the question mark right now that I think everybody that does this type of science acknowledges. Mm. And I think you've had a, a look at this, Kevin, in terms of, you know, that we know that there's people that are more prone to cramping during exercise, mm -hmm. and they seem to require less electrical stimulation, which is kind of that validation of that model. Correct. Yeah. So one yeah. of the, the very first studies that I ever did as a PhD student was just validating that main concept of uh, we use this thing called threshold frequency for electrical stimulation model, which in very layman's terms is 
just the number of electrical stimuli or shocks that it takes to get a muscle to cramp. And we use a very small muscle. Usually it's a muscle in the toe, like the abductor uh, halysis or the flexor halysis brevis, something that doesn't require a lot of stimulation to induce cramping because electrical stimulation can be uncomfortable for some people. And so to try and cramp like the calf, which some people have done, and I have done that in the past as well. It just takes a little bit more electrical stimulation, which makes them a little more uncomfortable and less tolerable for people. And uh, if you don't have people volunteer for your studies, then you can't publish anything. And so uh, we tend to use smaller muscles like in the hand or in the foot to study this. And so the threshold frequency is just the idea that if we do an intervention to you and it requires fewer electrical shocks to get you to cramp, then you have become more susceptible to cramping. And vice versa, if your threshold frequency increases, it becomes now harder to get you to cramp. Therefore, whatever we did to you might actually have a preventative effect toward cramping. And so one of the very first studies we ever did was just verified that concept that if people who have a history of cramping are actually easier to cramp, then they should really require less stimulation to cramp. And that fact has been borne out, I think, in my lab and several other studies showing uh, people with a history of cramping require less electrical stimulation than people who have never cramped before. So the validation of the actual model itself seems pretty sound. Mm. No, it's good. It gives us sort of confidence that those results will reflect, I guess, the real world from multiple angles, which is great. Now, if we get into the, I guess, the causes of cramping either during or after exercise, I guess if I had a dollar for every time I'd been asked what causes cramping, I'd probably be retired by now, as I'm sure you would as well, Kevin, uh, right. and most probably sports scientists and, and dietitians around the world. But when someone asks you what is seemingly a very simple question like that, what causes cramping, what's your sort of initial response to that? My, my first response is usually, well, that's the holy grail question right there. Uh, <laughs> if you can figure that out for everybody, then you probably don't need to work anymore. And mm -hmm. so the part of the fun, because I believe, you know, science should be fun, uh, of studying muscle cramping is uh, that question at the heart of that issue, trying to figure out what causes cramping for everybody. I don't know if we'll ever solve that mystery. I think the phenomenon is so complex and the body is so complex that uh, anytime you have some kind of illness or disease where somebody draws a nice little cartoon and one arrow leads to another arrow, it leads to another box. And then you get to the thing that you're interested in. You should have a healthy dose of skepticism about that. And so that's kind of what we saw in every publication about cramping up until I would say probably 2000 where just like one box happened and this box happens and then you get to cramping. And so I think the, the phenomena is much, much more complex than that. And instead of a nice kind of linear one box causes another, you have a spider web. And uh, I kind of jokingly call uh, what I proposed in, in my paper in the Journal of Athletic Training and in the, the chapter that I wrote, the kind of kitchen sink hypothesis, which kind of everything potentially could relate to causing or setting the stage for a muscle cramp to occur because the body is so complex and so interconnected that one thing can kind of act as a domino to another thing that impacts central nervous system excitability. And so I think for the last 20, 30 years now, we've kind of accumulated this massive knowledge about exercise associated muscle cramping that it seems to be primarily related to changes in the central nervous system rather than something 
so kind of simple, like just losing water or dehydration or just losing salt in your sweat. It's much, much more complicated than that. And I would even add to that, it's, it's much more complicated than just fatigue because we have some really world-class athletes who are obviously well-conditioned. They're obviously well-trained, but they still cramp. And so it, it can't just be, well, they get tired. And so I think you have this kind of spider web of factors that are involved. And this kind of led me to propose like our new theory, like the multifactorial theory, where for each individual person, we all have our own threshold, if you will, of where we cramp. And that threshold can be either moved positively or negatively towards or away from a greater susceptibility to cramping based on how we prepare for exercise that day or nutritional factors or training preparation. And we can modulate those uh, thresholds uh, for each individual person. And so I refer to uh, cramping kind of like a recipe. So my recipe for cramping might be very different than Steph's recipe or Alan's recipe for cramping. So to say the cause of cramping singular, like there's a single thing that causes it, I think is a very oversimplification of a very complex phenomenon. Mm, yep. And, and I really enjoyed reading that review paper that you just mentioned before in the Journal of Athletic Training, as, as well as that ebook chapter that you wrote. And I particularly loved that diagram and as you said you know the simple box and arrow well yours has got lots of boxes and lots of arrows but they're going in all sorts of different directions it's right. not just a single straight line as you said um and it sort of describes all those different different pathways and it really reminds me we were talking off air before a lot of the model that our lab leader at monash ricardo costa put together for exercise induced gastrointestinal syndrome where you have lots of different pathways that can result in the same kind of outcome um right. do you want to tell us a bit more about how that diagram kind of came about and how you got the idea to put all of that together? Sure. So uh, for any future uh, PhD students or terminal degree students uh, listening to this, uh, one of the things that's very common uh, for those of us that went through this process has been writing that lit review, right, for our, our final culminating uh, dissertation or thesis. And so as I was uh, studying muscle cramping and kind of putting together my materials for uh, my dissertation project, you just, you read nonstop. There's just so many things to look at and read. And the beauty of studying something like muscle cramping is you get to read in a lot of different areas. So I was reading fatigue literature. I was reading hydration literature, rehydration literature, electrolyte physiology literature, uh, thermal physiology literature. And I started trying to put together kind of this new idea for why cramping might occur. And everything published up to that point was, again, this very kind of simple, you know, athlete exercises, athlete becomes tired, central nervous system, fatigue occurs, and then cramp occurs. And so kind of very, very, very crudely summarizing uh, Martin Schwellness's work there. Or you have on the other side of the teeter-totter, athlete exercises, athlete becomes dehydrated, Mechanical pressure occurs on nerves, cramp ensues uh, from like a Mike Bergeron type uh, review paper. And so you had these kind of two very different camps of science saying one thing kind of was affecting another. But as I was reading and putting together all my materials, it was clear that, you know, muscle temperature increases during exercise and affects excitability of the muscle and the nerves and things like pH changes. And then you have 
things like fatigue affecting Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles and dehydration can induce premature fatigue. So maybe it wasn't just the water loss per se. Maybe it was the induction of the earlier onset of fatigue that was causing muscle cramping to occur. So maybe it was kind of a different way to look at dehydration. And so kind of the more I read, the more kind of obvious it became that the complexity of this question is overwhelming. And so I started to try and draw those very simple boxes and arrows. And when I was done, what I had was this giant spider web looking thing where you have so many different interconnectedness between the mechanoreceptors and uh, all the different pathways that go from just the brain to ultimately a muscle of places where things could go wrong and be influenced in that pathway. And so it became this very kind of spider web um, hypothesis where it's not just one factor that can influence excitability if that is the final pathway. It's got to be a multitude of factors. So then that kind of spurned the idea, well, maybe this is something that uh, changes as a result of someone's physiology. So maybe someone's genetics could play a part. Maybe how they think and how they feel influences the ultimate what's happening at a muscle. And so the idea of stress and anxiety, uh, we kind of ignore that as sports scientists, kind of like the effect of the mind on the body. Everybody was kind of taking a physiological approach, and yet we know that stress and anxiety can influence muscle activity. And so we've, we've all seen that athlete that comes out of the gate that's just ready to you know rip somebody's head off in <laughs> quarter one of a match or a game. And, and so that pre-event mindset we aren't talking about that at all. So kind of looking at all these different things and looking at the complexity of the body kind of spurred me into thinking, well, maybe this is something that's more multifactorial in nature. And so maybe, maybe there's something to say about this dehydration hypothesis. Maybe there's something to say about this fatigue hypothesis. And what if we just kind of blended them together along with these other possible external and internal factors to create a new idea of this kind of threshold, this multifactorial theory where we can adjust our threshold uh, upwards or downwards, depending on what we do to our body. And then that can create the the scene, if you will, for cramping. And so uh, my recipe for cramping, like I said, might be that I exercise for a longer duration than I typically do, maybe at a harder intensity than I typically do. And I have more anxiety because I'm competing uh, versus when I'm training. And so you add all three of those things together for me, and now I cramp. But now you take away the anxiety from the competition side of things, and I'm just training. And I train for the same duration, the same intensity, but I don't cramp. And so everybody's recipe could be different, and it can even be different depending on the day. And so giving that holy grail answer of, well, it's got to be this, is very, very challenging because we have athletes and talk to anybody that gets muscle cramping, they'll say, well, I I did the exact same workout or I did the exact same race. I did everything the same. Why am I cramping on this day? That's the question right there. And so I think changing the focus to a multifactorial perspective to us rather than a singular etiology changes the approach that we take to training, to nutrition, to studying how our own unique physiology influences our cramp susceptibility. And so when you change that philosophy from it's a, it's dehydration, 
Well, if it was dehydration, the treatment is simple, right? It's hydration. But clearly we have people who just drink and drink and drink and they still cramp. If the problem was just fatigue, well, then the solution is just more training. And yet we have some of the best well-conditioned people in the world still cramping. And so I think, again, you change your perspective to kind of this recipe, this multifactorial, and you look at yourself as an individual, and then that creates homework, which is what nobody wants to hear, right? They Mm -hmm. want to be told, oh, just drink pickle juice or Mm -hmm. just drink more sports drink and then you'll be fine or just add this to your diet. And it's not that simple. We have to treat muscle cramping during exercise, just like we would any other medical condition that you might see a physician for. And so you go see a physician, they're going to ask you lots of questions about your medical background, your history, your genetics, your family history. We have to do the same thing with muscle cramping so we can try and figure out what is this person's unique recipe. And then you target those individual factors with your intervention. And that's the ultimate second holy grail question, which is how do you treat and how do you prevent cramping? (laughs) Yeah, But nobody likes homework, (laughs) and I get it. I'm a professor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think it's a really great explanation, and I think it's it's really clear that it's not that sort of simple one-to-one relationship where the one cause leads to the one outcome. It's it's a many-to-one relationship that many different factors can converge to end up with the same outcome, which, um, again, you know, similar to the gut stuff that Steph works on with the team at Monash, very similar kind of explanation and very similar model which i think is why steph and i sort of look at it and just go yes that makes perfect sense to us um but let's go and discuss i guess the kind of the common pathways within that model and having a look at that diagram it seems to me like you've got sort of two main pathways that both lead to what you call sort of the final common pathway which is basically that altered control of the muscle contractions by the nervous system that leads to the the final thing which is the cramping but am i right in saying that the two things that kind of happen before that are either changes in the way that the central nervous system functions so that's the brain and or the spinal cord or some sort of feedback that's coming to the nervous system from the muscle itself yeah i think it's both i think um there's really great arguments that uh cramping has a central um origin. And there's some really good arguments that it has a peripheral origin. I think, again, we, we try to tease it out because as scientists, we want to know cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And we want to know what is this thing doing when we do this other thing. And so when you hold everything constant, except for one thing, it's really fun to be able to see that cause and effect relationship. But again, the complexity of the system, I think, makes that really challenging in studying exercise associated muscle cramping. But I, th- I do think that the the evidence that now is accumulating over the last 30 to 40 years is kind of skewing us in that direction where it seems to be more of a neurological phenomenon and less likely a metabolic phenomenon due to dehydration or electrolyte loss and those types of things. Mm, yeah. And so I guess if we start by looking at those changes that happen in the central nervous system, what does that actually mean? And I guess what factors can have this effect? I mean, you've mentioned things like stress and anxiety before, uh, medical conditions, obviously, um, but things like medications might come into this and supplements and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, how do you sort of describe that kind of central nervous system change in function? I think excitability-wise is kind of the the main areas that we, we look at when we say CNS change, whether or not a motor neuron becomes more easily excitable or less excitable. Uh, Some work has focused on some of the 
the afferent input to that alpha motor neuron, kind of like your, your big two, like the Golgi tendon organs and the muscle spindles. Um, a lot of that early work in the 1980s that kind of helped uh, Martin Schwellness develop his hypothesis for fatigue-induced changes as a result of, or as an idea for why cramping occurs uh, kind of happened in cats. And so part of the limitation of that kind of research was the stimulation frequencies that they, they sent through those cats were really, really high, like over 100 hertz. And so in humans, it's really hard to get that kind of high stimulation. And so there was kind of that validity piece that was kind of missing. But when you do that stuff, what we see is actually changes to muscle spindle excitability and muscle spindle output. And so uh, same thing with Golgi tendon organs. These were like the Nelson and Hutton papers of the 1980s, I think 1985, if I remember right. And so uh, they found that when, when you do hit muscles with those types of things, you do see really interesting changes to how quickly the Golgi tendon organs and muscle spindles respond, how much they respond, uh, kind of the delays in their response. And when you uh, fatigue them, you start to see kind of that excitability teeter-totter go more towards excitation. And so that kind of early research was really, I think, what spawned Dr. Schwaldness to propose his original etiology paper in 1997, uh, originally suggesting that it was this kind of neural change that was responsible for the exercise associated muscle cramping. In humans, that data is less clear um, because, again, we don't have those kind of supra high uh, frequencies to stimulate the fatigue. And so that's where it gets really kind of challenging to get the same kind of relationship in humans. Uh, but that's kind of the, the basic idea. So we think that there's excitability changes. Um, as I was doing even my own multifactorial theory, a lot of those arrows, while they look really nice and clean, uh, in all honesty, can be, you know, kind of prefaced with a question mark. We're still trying to figure out not only what is the importance of this factor, to the ultimate genesis of cramping, but also the physiological how does this factor. And so I kind of like to think of myself as kind of a person in the middle. And so I acknowledge that I think fatigue definitely can cause some excitability changes in the nervous system. But I also think dehydration can cause some excitability changes in the nervous system. So I, I would not necessarily agree that it was kind of the dehydration, like loss of fluid that might be uh, predisposing athletes to cramping, but I won't say that dehydration doesn't play a role at all. Uh, mm. I think we had some data from even my lab uh, where we we did the largest prospective cohort study in division one collegiate athletes and every single sport that we looked at sweat electrolyte loss and fluid losses, every single sport of the 11 sports we studied, uh, fluid loss, sweat electrolyte content did not factor into whether or not somebody had a history of cramping or not. The one sport where it was kind of predictive was American football. So you have some very large human beings losing some very large quantities of uh, fluid and electrolytes. But when you take out that one sport, then in football players, tennis, uh, wrestling, volleyball, lacrosse, field hockey, uh, gymnastics, all of these other sports doesn't seem to be a factor, but the one sport it does is American football. So again, it's the how exactly is dehydration causing or contributing to cramping that I think is still a question. I don't think it's just the loss of the water. I think it's much more uh, related to nervous excitability, but you have, again, 
lots of factors kind of combining and coalescing at the right time when the stage is set to trigger that uh, muscle cramp. Yeah. And you mentioned before the sort of the stress anxiety side of things. Where do you see that kind of factoring into this? Is this like a stress hormone response that then has an impact on that nervous system excitability or is it something else? Yeah, great question. Um, <laughs> and that's usually <laughs> where I stop because yeah. a lot of times people, people will bring to me fantastic questions like what are your thoughts about troponin and calcium release? And these are all great questions. I, I totally understand them from a physiological perspective, but we just don't have a lot of great data to answer those types of questions. And so from a cortisol standpoint, and cramping, great question, needs to be studied. From a psychological stress perspective, um, great question, still needs to be studied. I'm currently working with a, a doc student at UNLV, and we're trying to tease that point out, kind of these psychological factors and stress and its relationship to cramp threshold frequency using that electrical stimulation model. Uh, because again, we tend to focus primarily on those physiological factors and we tend to forget those psychological factors. And so we know from a completely different set of literature that if we induce uh, or if we inject a pain causing agent, an algesic agent into a muscle, uh, we can induce muscle cramps in that muscle. So when nociception is high, when pain is high, we can cause cramping. And so we also know from, again, completely different literature, that if you give somebody just a very simple, stressful task, something as simple as just counting backwards from a very high number by like 17, that seemingly very simple but uh, stressful consequence creates increases in muscle activity, like in trigger points, and then may, again, change the excitability of that muscle and again might be one of those factors where if you just have anxiety your threshold you get a little bit closer to your cramp threshold you don't cramp because lots of people are stressed out lots of people have anxiety but they're not walking around grabbing their hamstrings however we're just talking about modulating the system and so raising and lowering that bar for where cramping occurs becomes easier or harder for you depending on your pre-event mindset so uh, Martin Schwellness did some really interesting work on this where the people who actually cramped during a race predicted they would do better than the people who did not cramp. So again, this is a really fascinating area and it's, it's really fun to kind of speculate. And even, you know, as scientists, I kind of pucker up a little bit because, you know, we kind of hate that, that guessing piece, but perhaps that pre-event stress and that anxiety of wanting to perform better than they actually did raised their uh, or affected their threshold for cramping that day and may have contributed to their ultimate cramp during the race. It's, it's fun to speculate that way, and we still need to do some work on that, uh, but that's an area where I think we need to, to figure out that contribution. Mm, yeah, it's a fascinating one, and I know the, that sort of that clinical questionnaire that you have in that same paper that you, know, you ask a bunch of questions to the athlete to try and figure out what some of those triggers or risk factors might be for the individual. And I've, I've used that a few times now in athletes. And the one that almost always comes back to is this is happening on race day. It's not happening in training despite right. your best effort to try and reproduce it in training. So what is fundamentally different about race day compared to in training? And and I think, yeah, that's a, a really big one. So it'd be fascinating to see sort of what, what comes of that in the future. Right. And I would even add to that sleep. 
Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of times we forget the importance of sleep. Like uh, right now as a society, I think people are just working longer hours, working more hours and the ability to allow your body to rest a lot of times or just, you know, recover from training is so important to be successful as an athlete that a lot of times we just get stuck into this mindset of we got to do more. Somebody else is in the weight room right now beating me. And so I got up my intensity, I got up my duration or, and we forget that rest is also critical. And so mm. again, another area where we want to potentially go in the future is just looking at the impact of sleep and sleep cycle and quality and quantity of sleep on cramp susceptibility as well. Again, trying to, tease out what is the importance of each of these little factors that's in the spider web. And then once we identify which factors seem to be like in the top 10% of crampers or the bottom 10% of crampers, then we can start maybe putting together that kind of um, treatment regime to help the most people uh, by looking at these types of things. Mm-hmm. The other one I've noticed too, um, coming from a mountain bike background, and this, this might be more the psychological stress rather than anything physiological, is that, well, I mean, I guess they're kind of related anyway, but I've noticed a few times if I've come off the bike for whatever reason and not not injured or anything, just come off and had a bit of a, a shock, get back on the bike, and if I'm, I'm someone who is prone to cramping, within 10 minutes, like you can almost predict after coming off the bike, within 10 minutes the cramping is going to start. Um, and it's a fascinating one for me. And, and again, it could be just that sort of, stress hormone response to coming off your bike and getting a bit of an adrenaline surge or something. Right. And that's, it's such an interesting phenomenon because I was the same way as well. When I played uh, competitive soccer growing up, I knew if I make one more run, I'm going to cramp my calf. I knew exactly what it was going to take, how close I was. And so there seems to be this, this conscious level also about cramping where we know that something is, isn't right in our muscles. Maybe you actually get some fasciculations or some, you know, some twinges in the muscle that you're like, "Uh Oh, I felt this before. I know what's going to happen next. If I don't slow down or if I don't intervene now, I'm going to be in a full cramp here, uh, imminently. And so it's really interesting that those of us who, uh, cramp a lot have that sensation kind of, uh, in the back of our mind and that influences what we do on race day or how we prepare. Um, but what's been interesting, and we did a study on this where we, we removed exercise, we removed dehydration and sweat loss and all the things. We just had rested people come in and they volitionally induced a cramp. And then we measured something about their nervous system, whether it was like H reflex activity or their cramp threshold frequency and just the act of cramping. So irrespective, so these people didn't do any exercise, they just cramped themselves. That changed their susceptibility to cramping and changed their nervous system excitability. And so we have a lot of athletic trainers or physios ask, you know, why are my people still cramping even after I do some kind of treatment on them? And again, I think it's because just even that act of cramping has now changed the game for that person where now their, their central nervous system is excited just from the cramp itself. And so once you get a cramp, it seems to be you are now prone to a second and a third until you finally cease that exercise and you allow your body to recover and relax. 
because um, we just have athletic trainers who will have an athlete cramp in the second quarter of an American football game. They cramp in the third quarter. They cramp in the beginning of the fourth. And it's just something that they continually struggle with until they finally can stop. And just, again, all of those factors continue to add up. But then you add on top of that that you've already cramped once. And now the stage is, I think, just continually set against you for the rest of that exercise duration. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so just, I guess, going now into the nutrition aspect of it. Um, so if we think about the most common things that athletes would consider that contribute to their cramping would be, as you've mentioned, hydration and or electrolytes. So where's the research in this regard in terms of how does that actually fit into the model for, for cramping or how would you explain that dehydration or electrolytes could contribute to cramping? Yeah, so this is a great question and kind of was some of the, the background for originally the dehydration hypothesis. So uh, Mike Bergeron, for example, worked with some tennis athletes and found that when you add a bunch of sodium to their sports drink, you can prevent cramping. Well, again, the problem with that type of research is, well, was it the fluid that you gave them, the extra sodium bolus, the carbohydrate that you gave them in the drink? Uh, what was it exactly that caused it? Because they did a whole bunch of things besides just added salt mm. to that solution. And so when you try and tease out, is it sodium? Is it the other electrolytes? Is it carbohydrate? Uh, Again, we don't have a lot of great research on that because, again, a lot of times that type of research, and I know there were some some papers that came out, I want to say in the last two years, where they looked at sports drinks and cramp threshold frequency and those types of things, where it it's, seems to be that if you drink something with like a sports drink, it's going to delay or increase that cramp threshold frequency indicative of you know a preventative effect. But again, you did a whole bunch of things. You had salt in the drink, you had carbs in the drink, you had water in the drink. So which one was it? There's never been a really great study where all they got was carbohydrate or all they got was pure water. And you look at each individual component, they're always given together. So I think we still have some work we need to do in that regard. Uh, we do know from some volitional cramp research that if you consume a beverage that contains sugar, it seems to delay, it delays the onset of cramping. Mm -hmm. So something like you can exercise twice as long if you consume a sports drink before you get muscle cramps. But therein lies kind of the paradox of cramp literature is, but you still cramp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you delayed the onset, but you still cramped. And so it, it's not a cure-all by any means, but it does seem to be suggested that maybe it can help some people. So I think this is an area that deserves more explanation and teasing out. And I would hesitate to say, well, everybody should just, you know, eat more carbs and then you won't cramp mm -hmm. anymore. Again, I think it's much more complex than that. But if cramping is related to excitability changes that are brought on by fatigue, then yeah, naturally, I think the hypothesis makes sense that if you consume more carbs or if you consume carbs at the right time, probably the more important thing is the timing, then you can maybe delay the onset of, of cramping a bit. But again, at this point, I would say it's still pretty speculative. Mm, yep. And um, so is that similar in terms of uh, hydration and, and sodium? Like where do you see that um, if I 
consume more sodium, do you think that's going to have any benefit for um, preventing the onset of, of cramping? It doesn't seem to be borne out in the literature. Um, there were some some research done by Marty Hoffman's group from the U.S. where they looked at marathoners and cramping and did they take pre-event sodium tablets mm. or they looked at their sodium over the course of the, the ultra marathon. And it doesn't seem like the extra sodium bolus that they, they took impacted the crampers. Um, this is, I would say, a really messy area that's it's not been super well studied in a very well controlled environment. And so, again, you got to remember that even if you just consume a bunch of sodium, you're doing more to the body than just adding sodium to it, right? We're changing fluid physiology and how fluid moves between all the different compartments of the body. And so if I take in a bunch of sodium, I tend to retain more fluid. Well, if dehydration contributes to cramp genesis by uh, preventing the, or by causing earlier onset fatigue, if my body is holding on to more water because of the extra salt I, I took in, was it because of the salt or was it because of the retaining of water they already had? or the preventing of water from moving to different compartments and me peeing more. Um, so that's where the complexity of it is really sticky. And so then it begs the question, well, can I get the same effect with other types of uh, nutrients mm -hmm. or uh, uh, supplementation, like maybe glycerol can might help me, or you've seen some maybe stuff in the early nineties, like with creatine mm -hmm. and cramping and those types of things. So that, those types of chemicals and those things that influence a, an effect on the body's fluid physiology. Maybe those can be helpful. So lots of great questions in this area. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be that it's the sodium mm -hmm. necessarily that is being responsible for preventing cramping, but lots of research I would say needs to be more in this area. Mm -hmm. And athletes can sometimes think that magnesium helps their cramping. Where, do you, where does mm -hmm. that stem from? Yeah, great question. So anything that is obviously in the blood can be lost in sweat because we get our sweat from obviously our blood. And so you do lose magnesium, potassium, calcium, sodium mm. in your sweat mm. that we've known for years. Mm. However, when we look at sweat characteristics of crampers versus non-crampers, there doesn't seem to be any differences in how much magnesium or calcium is lost mm. in the sweat. Mm. Now, we do have a completely separate body of literature. Again, we're trying to look for, you know, clues mm. in other bodies of literature, like pregnancy-related cramping does seem to be related to the level of potassium in the blood. Mm. So we do know that hypomagnesium uh, in the blood can also perhaps relate to cramping. But is that exercise-related cramping? Mm. Is low magnesium in the bloodstream a result of exercise? Generally speaking, no, because again, we tend to lose more fluid when we sweat than we do electrolytes. And so the concentration of those trace electrolytes and minerals tends to go up in our body, not down. And so that's the, the really hard part of trying to relate other types of cramping to exercise because those kind of pathological conditions that you see with like pregnancy and all that kind of fluid retention that's related to those types of uh, conditions don't necessarily translate over to your typical athlete competing mm. in a marathon or doing an exercise session. Yep. Yep. And then thinking about the um, altered central nervous system functioning other than caffeine um, as a stimulant, do you 
feel like there's other nutritional strategies that might play a role here as well? Sure. So the, the cop-out answer for um, any kind of nutrition perspective is eat a well-balanced, nutritious meal yeah. and do that consistently. And we hope that will be good advice for everybody. You know, So drink enough water, drink, get your macronutrients, get help where you need it, supplement where you're unable to do that in your diet. And we hope that will all work out for you. Um, when it pertains to cramp literature from a nutrition perspective, this is an area that definitely needs further exploration. Athletic trainers, I think, have tried helping your secondary school athlete for years eat better, eat more nutritious foods, more energy-dense foods as a way to try and prevent cramping. Now, is there great science to support that practice? I would say no. And so, again, it's another area where we need to do some more study. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's an, part of the fun of studying muscle cramping is almost any idea that you come up with is a novel idea that's publishable because again, nobody has really looked at or considered this phenomenon as being very serious. Yep. And so there's lots of areas for further exploration. If there are students are uh, listening to this as well, um, you can really make an impact in this area because we have so many different angles to approach this and there is so much work that needs to be done. Uh, besides that happening in my lab. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess just the final one that people will ask about, um, our listeners will be thinking about because a lot of them will have taken it, is um, is there then anything in um, pickle juice um, or, you know, the chilli, those acidic type things um, that can possibly help um, maybe reduce the length of, of cramping so they're probably not going to um, prevent the onset, but where's the evidence for using those types of products? Sure. So a lot of the early work that I've done looked at pickle juice and a lot of the early science was just trying to answer the question, like how fast can we get the sodium that is in pickle juice into the bloodstream? So they were really simple uh, blood studies, just looking at the effect of drinking pickle juice on osmolality and plasma volume and electrolyte concentrations. And uh, like anything you put into the body by drinking it or consuming it, it takes time, right? It's got to go into the stomach. The stomach's got to digest it. It's got to be passed through into the small intestines where it's absorbed, circulated into the vasculature, and then works its way to the muscle. Mm. And all of that takes time. So we, we did a, a study once where we gave people upwards of, I believe, 600 milliliters of pickle juice. And we asked them to drink this in 90 seconds. And we put a chemical <laughs> called phenol red in the pickle juice, which turned it brown, which was an interesting <laughs> phenomenon to observe by itself. Um, but by doing that, we could actually measure how quickly the pickle juice left the stomach. So gastric emptying is a way of trying to figure out, you know, how quickly are these nutrients made available to the small intestine and therefore the vasculature and those types of things. So when you pair that with plasma data or blood data, mm -hmm. we can kind of see, you know, how fast are things getting from the stomach into the vasculature. And the really interesting thing was after the first five minutes, the pickle juice just sat in the stomach. And so the number one thing that influences how quickly something leaves the stomach is volume. So it doesn't matter if you drink orange juice, pickle juice, water, Gatorade, or any other sports drink. If you, if you drink enough of it, the stomach wants to push that downstream. 
And then you have all the secondary factors like its pH, its carbohydrate content, its sodium content that influence how quickly it leaves the stomach afterwards. And so what we noticed with pickle juice was we, we had the majority of it just sitting in the stomach for about 20 to 25 minutes. Now, a few years later, we did a study where we gave people very small volume in comparison, only about, um, about 80 milliliters of pickle juice while they were cramping. And the cramps seemed to not last as long as when they drank water or nothing at all. So pickle juice seemed to relieve a cramp faster than nothing and deionize water. Now, what you've seen from that, uh, since that kind of paper we published in 2010, is kind of the companies kind of hashed on to this principle. And then you have products like Hotshot, which are capsaicin, uh, beverages are trying to work on the same system where that kind of oral pharyngeal reflex being stimulated that maybe it's kind of like a counter irritant to the brain. So you have this overexcitation in the brain, and then you hit the central nervous system with more excitation from that either spicy beverage or high acidic beverage. And then it kind of disrupts the neural signals going to the muscle and the muscle stops cramping. That's kind of the, the theoretical proposal right now that's the best explanation that we have for why these products might work. But again, you kind of have this paradox when you're studying cramping. So the folks who uh, studied hotshot, for example, they observed that the hotshot uh, seemingly worked where it delayed the cramp onset or it shortened the cramp duration. But then the paradox is, but everybody's still cramped. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. the, the point of the product is to stop cramping yeah. or prevent cramps altogether. And yet you're claiming the product was successful, but everybody's still cramped. Now, granted, yeah. the cramps were less intense and they lasted less long, but everybody's still cramped. And so, again, there's this kind of paradox where uh, if you're going to study cramp cramping, you've got to figure out a, a model that is not, we need to cramp them in order to figure out if this thing works or what is the what is the contribution of this factor to cramping because true prevention they shouldn't cramp at all mm. so mm. the ability to cramp somebody following an intervention that's supposed to help people to, in my opinion fails if everybody still cramps mm. but that's kind of the the nature of the electrical stimulation laboratory method and so that type of science is probably best studied more so in kind of like the athletic realm and uh, those types of things where we can hopefully control diet a little bit better. But that kind of research is really expensive to do and it's really hard to do. And so what you see is these kind of electrical stimulation studies. And I'm, I'm guilty of those types of studies too. I do them all the time, uh, which is why when we published that pickle juice paper, rather than looking at cramp threshold frequency changes, which again evokes that paradox, we look at cramp duration. So we induce a cramp, but then we measure how, how long the cramp lasts rather than looking at susceptibility to cramping per se, because again, if everybody cramps, then it wasn't a preventative mm -hmm. uh, effect. And so that's where uh, my, my group has come to try and answer that question and avoid that paradox. But you do have some conflicting reports in the literature uh, I think there was a, a recent paper that was published looking at this product pickle juice sport, which I think is kind of a, a watered down uh, product with acetic acid in it. Mm -hmm. And it, it did show some promise, but it wasn't significantly different. 
but again, the the problem with that literature, because at its face value, you think, well, this research directly conflicts with, you know, Dr. Miller's research from 2010, which showed pickle juice had an effect. And the part that I think a lot of people forget is they don't set the stage appropriately when they when they look at the effectiveness of treatments. And so we we put people into an environmental chamber. We dehydrated them. We caused some central fatigue first, and then we studied the effect of the treatment. A lot of people will try to avoid all the stuff that it's really hard. It takes a long time and then just bring rested people in mm -hmm. and then give them mm -hmm. the product and then say, well, the product works or it doesn't work. And again, that's not what an athlete experiences when they get exercise associated muscle cramping. They don't usually cramp right away. They cramp toward the end of exercise. And so you've got to set the stage appropriately. So I think those methodological differences explain some of the discrepant findings between some of my earlier work and then what we're starting to see now with some of these other beverages and uh, containing even acetic acid in the capsaicin products. Mm. And so bringing all of that together, Kevin, from a nutrition point of view, and I'm not sure, do you work directly with athletes through your university role as well? Uh, sometimes, right. Yeah. So for them, what do you kind of recommend from all of that bunch of stuff <laughs> um, for the people who are prone to cramping? How do you suggest they go about it? Right. So for all the coaches, for all the athletes, and all the athletic trainers and physios out there listening, uh, it's the, the answer that nobody wants to hear. You, you have to do your homework. You really have to take a medical approach toward muscle cramping because that's truly what a muscle cramp is. And even though it's common and even though, you know, it might be painful for a short amount of time, it still deserves the attention of a medical condition because that's what it is. A muscle cramp is not a normal condition for someone to experience over the course of exercise or their day-to-day -day life. And so something is happening to that person that is abnormal and they need your help. And so the difficult thing is you have to take your time and you have to try and figure out again what that person's recipe is for cramping. And so this is why I always advocate that athletes, coaches, physios, or athletic trainers keep a kind of a cramp journal or a cramp diary. And so one of the things uh, that I think is so helpful from the, the recent paper that we published in the Journal of Athletic Training was we gave a whole bunch of questions that we thought might be helpful for athletes or coaches to ask as a way of trying to look for patterns. So if you notice that you didn't sleep well the night before and you cramped during the exercise session the next day, well then maybe sleep for you is one of your factors. And so we wanna try and intervene with you by helping you get a better night's sleep. Or again, maybe it's the nutritional side of things where you struggle, or maybe it's the hydration side of things. We're trying to identify your unique recipe because we want to target those factors with interventions rather than taking a very shotgun approach and just say, everybody drink pickle juice or everybody drink Gatorade or acetic vinegar or hot shot. Um, because trying to treat everybody like they're all the same is not how you do medicine. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And so I guess if people are, yeah, as we said at the start, you know, if people are looking for the cause of their cramping, they're likely to go off on some sort of wild goose chase and end up pretty disappointed because they'll never find it. So I guess is your approach then almost to try and, yeah, obviously look for, for patterns, um, but even if you can find one or even if you can't, I guess trying to look at all of those risk factors in that model and try to basically cover as many of them as you possibly can. Yeah, I think that's a, a good first place to start. 
Mm. Yep. So then it's looking at the nutrition, the hydration, the body temperature regulation, the psychological state, the supplements, the medication, like the whole shebang, essentially. Yeah. And I would even before doing all of that work, I would say all of that presumes that you do not have some kind of underlying medical condition. So mm. step one uh, in that paper and that table was always see a physician first. You know, mm. if you have diabetes or Machado Joseph's or MS, then that's step number one. We got to treat the, the comorbidity. The cramp is now a sign or a symptom of the underlying medical condition. So assuming you've seen a physician and they've done testing and there doesn't seem to be anything medically wrong with you that is causing the cramps to occur, then we can take those second and third steps of trying to identify that, that individual recipe for cramping. But we're, again, we're talking about the healthy person that doesn't have any of those comorbidities that just gets cramped during exercise. That's the approach that that person should take. Yep. Cool. All right. And then final question before we get finish off with our bonus round, what do you think sort of coming up next in cramping research? Where do you think it's going at the moment and, and what I guess can people look forward to in terms of, you know, new insights? Right. So I think the, the next 20 years is going to be, uh, more research on those individual factors. So trying to figure out what is their contribution to cramping and trying to figure out how that how question, how does it change the physiology of the body? And therefore, once we find the factors that seem to be the predominant factors for most people, then that needs to be followed up with the confirmation studies of the, the treatment intervention. And so part of the, the discrepant findings, I think, triggered Dr. Schwellness from, you know, seeing what was done to proposing something new was the disconnect between everybody saying that dehydration causes cramping only to remember, well, the immediate treatment for cramping is stretching. Mm. And so the question mm. I always like to ask the athletes and the coaches is how much fluid is added to the body by stretching? How much mm. electrolytes are added to the body by stretching? Well, none. And so if the cause of cramping is dehydration, then the treatment should not be stretching. The treatment should be drinking fluid or consuming electrolytes. So it didn't make any sense. So there's a disconnect between the proposed cause and the proposed treatment. And so I think, again, trying to solve that pathophysiology and that the cause of cramping, you have the, the groundwork of these are the factors that seem to be most involved, followed by the confirmation studies of here's the treatments that influence those factors. And if those change susceptibility up and down, then I think we can start to be more confident on the actual cause and then developing some treatment regimens. Yep. That takes a lot of legwork and not a lot of mm. uh, people and a lot of companies are willing to put in that legwork. It's much, much easier to put something into a bottle and claim that, you know, you drink this or you rub this and your cramps will go away. And so I'm, I'm always impressed because I also work with a lot of companies. I have a side consulting business where I help companies do research and those types of things. I'm always impressed by the companies that want to start with the science first rather than start with marketing first. And so yep. those are the, the folks that I like to work with. And those are the ones that uh, hopefully hit big on the, the future product because they started with the science mm -hmm. rather than start with money. All right, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now, and she's going to finish us off with the bonus round. 
cool. All right. So this is just where the listeners get to learn a little bit more about you besides um, cramping. Um, so uh, if you weren't working in exercise science, which it sounds like you got your dream job um, and you're pretty content with it, um, what do you think you'd be doing instead apart from, you know, living in Texas where it's bloody hot? <laughs> um this was a question that got me thinking. Um, I really am doing what I love. I mean, this is, uh, science is, I think, again, so fun and so fascinating that, uh, again, for any of the for any student that is listening, if you can find something that you're passionate about that is also fun, you'll never work uh, a day in your life. And so for me, I really am doing what I love. So I love, you know, helping students. I love educating. I love asking new questions. And so the whole sports medicine uh, career just was a natural outlet for my my curiosity, um, but if any of that worked, I'd probably be doing something like uh, going to med school, trying to get to help people. Maybe doing like orthopedics as a physician rather than as a researcher. Yeah, um, and then one thing on your bucket list that you haven't yet done. Ah, oh, well, I've tried several times to skydive and. Several times I've been told it's too windy. Oh, no. And so I just never got around to uh, to doing that. But I always thought that was kind of fun, yeah. the idea of jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. Have you, have you um, <laughs> uh, bungee? I have not done bungee jumping either. Yeah, yeah. that's on But now, I've, yeah. now I'm old and I've got a wife and a child who probably would prefer not to see their dad all over the pavement. So... <laughs> <laughs> Insurance companies don't like to pay out for those types of activities, so I might have to hold off on that. <laughs> and um, what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't yet um, had the chance? Oh, boy. Another another great question. Um, so I, I probably do more jujitsu, to be honest. I taught uh, martial arts for, for several years as a – uh, a doctoral student in self-defense and those types of things. And one of the things that always uh, I loved was jujitsu and kind of the, the arm bars and the kind of martial arts defense type um, things that jujitsu kind of practice. And so I would probably spend more time in that area. It was a lot of fun. And favorite sporting moment in 2022 so far? Yeah, you guys are fantastic. You really got me thinking on a lot of these questions. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. So let me again say thank you for the opportunity to be here. I hope the listeners have had fun with this. Uh, I had to ask my daughter for this one because um, I was thinking all of 2022 and she's 11. So um, she reminded me one of the, the coolest things, and this, this may not be super fun for a lot of people, but uh, my daughter just played uh, soccer and she was getting more and more competitive. And so uh, as a former competitive soccer player myself, I've been working with her in the backyard and trying to help her understand the game a little bit more. And so I tried to stress upon her the importance of running to far post because she was playing striker mm -hmm. a lot on her team. And so in one of her games, she ran far post and got a perfect cross and put the, the ball in the back of the net. And then she turned to the sidelines and she yelled, far post, baby. <laughs> and for... <laughs> For me as a, a proud dad and a former soccer player, that was one of the coolest things I think in 2022 that happened for us. That's very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I like it. 
<laughs> and yeah. um, last question, do you live by any particular advice or um, motto? Man, there are just so many great ones. Um, one of my favorites that has always stuck with me was, I, I believe it's attributed to Bill Belichick that I think he said in a press conference, because Bill is notorious for not giving long speeches or talking very well to the press. And so he said, uh, when you win, say little, when you lose, say less. And so uh, that has always kind of stayed with me because again, I think it's a, a reminder and I, I know he wasn't talking about cramping or science in general, but just that there's so much that we have yet to learn that the, the folks that come out and are so confident in saying something is so factual only to find out a few years later that, oh, we were completely wrong. Mm. And what I try to educate our athletic train students at Texas State and everywhere I've ever been is just that, you know, 50% of the medical information that we have right now is probably going to be proven wrong in the next 15 to 20 years. The problem is we don't know which 50% it's going to be. Mm. And so having a healthy skepticism, I think, is is very good for, for students and scientists and all your listeners, too. And Maybe I'll, I'll add a, a second quote. Uh, it was one that my mentor uh, stressed to to me as a PhD student, which was a quote by Sir Francis uh, Bacon, who said, uh, read not to contradict and confute, nor to accept and take for granted, but to weigh and consider. And so what I, I hope your listeners took away from this discussion is there's a lot to weigh and consider. There's very little what I would say that we can really cling to hard truth and factual information when it comes to cramping. And so uh, don't take everything that I've said as gospel, because I'm certainly not perfect. Um, I make mistakes. My literature that I produce is not perfect. And so when you approach uh, life that way and science that way, I think it's a much healthier perspective and it leaves open the door for future exploration. Awesome. Great way to, to finish. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. It's been a really great conversation, and I know this is just such a common question that so many runners, cyclists, and triathletes have. So while it hasn't given them a definitive answer to go out and do this one thing or buy this one product, I guess that's kind of the point is because everyone's kind of looking for that one thing and that one product, and hopefully this gives people a better understanding that it's obviously a lot more complicated than that and something that they need to go away and have a bit of a think about and do some more research on. And we're going to have a, a follow-up with an athlete next week, and we're actually going to use those questions and that, that questionnaire that you put together um, in that paper that we discussed and, and sort of run through that with him and, and that hopefully will give people some some ideas about how they can apply that to themselves so thanks so much for your time great thanks to be here that was great bloody complex area as i'm sure we've all gotten out of that and um i know sometimes or often everyone likes this magic pill but I'm pretty sure we all knew that there was no magic pill because um, there's a lot of people that are suffering from muscle cramps and um, yeah this it's an ongoing issue um, so I will let you summarize the wise words of um, Kevin Miller mm, awesome yeah well as you said Steph obviously cramping is a complex phenomenon if it wasn't everyone would know what the cause of of it was and what the solution was and we wouldn't be talking about this and having this conversation so if it was just as simple as need more salt well then no one would cramp because everyone would know they just need more salt and they would take more salt and they wouldn't cramp anymore so it's clearly much more complicated than that and i think to think as kevin said you know this is the cause of cramping is far too simplistic 
Um, and it's also why it's so difficult to take what we tr tend to think of as that kind of scientific approach of trying to change one factor at a time to try and figure out what's contributing to the issue because there can be multiple factors contributing. And so if you only change one at a time, you don't necessarily get to the bottom of it. And it's exactly the same phenomenon that we see with exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome that we discussed back in episode 7a, that there's so many different factors coming in there. If you just try and change one thing at a time, you rarely, if ever, get to the bottom of it. So trial and error essentially doesn't really work in that sense. And I guess Kevin's new model brings together previously, well, I guess what people have um, thought of as kind of opposing theories in cramping and shows how they both could have a role um, in cramping to some extent. And I guess if we think about that model, there's kind of the two main pathways. There's changes in the functioning of the central nervous system itself, or there's feedback that comes to the central nervous system from the muscles. And Kevin talked about the, the Golgi tendon organs and the muscle spindles and their parts within the muscle that then feed back through the nervous system. And I guess for the nervous system function, uh, there's probably genetic components. You know, there's some people that just seem to be really susceptible to cramping, um, but there's things like medical conditions that you can potentially rule out in some cases, um, medications, things like the weather, especially hot conditions can contribute, anxiety and psychological stress, as well as the stress of exercise. And that was something that Kevin talked about is really a new frontier in cramping research. We suspect there might be something going on there, but it hasn't really been studied to date, except for the work that he's just starting now. So it'll be really interesting, I guess, to see what comes of that over the next few years. Um, there's a lack of sleep he mentioned as well as a potential one, uh, having that sudden stressful event during the exercise. We talked about you know having a crash or a near miss or something, slipping on a rock and almost rolling your ankle, something like that. Um, and then some supplements, so the stimulant supplements like caffeine may also have an impact as well. Um, but it is going to be individual. So for different people, it's going to be a different combination of these factors that contribute just like with the gut issues. In terms of the muscle feedback, in terms of Kevin's model, um, it takes into account things like muscle temperature, which is related to the exercise intensity, because obviously the, the more energy you churn through, because the intensity is higher, the more energy, the more heat you're going to produce, sorry, in the muscle, but also obviously the weather conditions. So people tend to cramp more in, in hot weather. You've got things like pain signals within the muscle from injury or muscle damage. Uh, one we didn't talk about a lot in the, um, in the podcast, but um, has come up and, and is in that model is also having repeated muscle contractions in the shortened position. So potentially a biomechanical thing. So thinking about runners, it's obviously shoes for cyclists, it's bike fit and things like that um, may play a role for some people. Uh, and then that element of muscle fatigue, which as Kevin said, um, might be under-recognized in some people, but it's certainly not gonna be the panacea as well. So things like having adequate carbohydrate may help from delaying muscle fatigue, but it's not gonna be a universal solution for everyone. So I guess from that nutrition perspective, I guess minimizing that muscle fatigue may help. And that's where adequate fueling um, may be useful. In terms of the hydration and, and electrolyte side of things, really we can't or we haven't seemed to be able to design a study to show good evidence that that is having a major impact. Uh, it may be playing a small role in terms of that muscle fatigue or something to do with that nervous system excitability. But again, as Kevin said, is it the water, is it the electrolytes, or is it the interaction between the two that changes how water moves throughout the body between the different compartments that's important? And there really hasn't been enough sort of systematic research in this area to get to the bottom of that properly. Um, so, you know, some people swear by taking salt tablets and things like that, um, or just having like a whole salt fluid uh, and not saying that it's rubbish, don't 
don't bother, uh, but we don't really understand how or why it's working and it's not going to be the universal solution for everyone. And there's plenty of people that try all those things and get absolutely nowhere with it. Likewise, some of the products, things like pickle juice and hot shots um, that Kevin mentioned, again, they may help temporarily relieve cramping a little bit um, by activating receptors in the mouth and feeding back to the central nervous system, but they certainly don't address the underlying causes that have led someone to cramping in the first place, and they don't completely get rid of the cramping. They just reduce um, the severity or maybe the duration a little bit. So they're kind of a little bit of relief, but they're not a complete prevention. And I guess the single most common observation that we tend to have is that cramps happen far more on race day than in training, despite what people often do to try and replicate the, the cut and thrust of racing in training, it's never exactly the same. So I guess the things that you can do is ask yourself, what is different fundamentally about race day? And it could be a lot of things. It could be the intensity, it could be the duration, it could be the psychological aspect, the anxiety or the race, ner race day nerves. It could be muscle fatigue that accumulates on race day. It could be the use of you know more caffeine on race day compared to in training. It could be all sorts of things. Um, and there's a whole bunch of questions that we can ask ourselves to try and tease out that pattern in individuals. And we're going to have a look at that in our next episode. And I guess finally, you know, as I've kind of alluded to, as Kevin talked about, no two people are going to have the exact same causes of their cramping. So you need to figure it out for yourself. And unfortunately, you know, you've done a lot of work, Steph, in terms of that gut assessment protocol to work out what's the cause of gut issues um, and then trying to figure out the individual recipe for that athlete. We don't have an equivalent testing protocol for cramping. Maybe that's something that will happen in the future, uh, but until it is, it's, it's a bit more of, um, yeah, trying to identify what risk factors might be contributing and trying to control as many of those as you possibly can in the meantime. Yeah, and as Kevin said, um, unfortunately, it's not what we always want to hear about, but it's about, yeah, doing your homework um, and asking those questions. And, um, yeah, we can um, put out on social media perhaps a, a, a list of the types of questions people should be thinking about um, when it comes down to cramping. Yep. Um, but so next episode, we've got 45B, How Can I Stop Cramping?, um, and we're joined with someone we've actually already had on the podcast now. Yeah, yeah, we're joined again by cyclist and now triathlete Ben Hill. Um, <laughs> so we had him on the podcast a few months ago talking about nutrition for travel. Um, but he is also an athlete that I've worked with and had a lot of problems with cramping over the years. So we'll have a chat to him about that and all the different things he's tried and what he's found has been helpful for him. But we're also, as I said, going to take that questionnaire from Kevin's paper and actually apply that to Ben's situation and try and get a sense of what patterns emerge from those questions. And hopefully that gives people an idea of how they could use that for themselves as well. Mm, yeah, that that would be very useful. Um, and then just finally wrapping up, um, a reminder, if you have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And just to remember, there's more than 40 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Um, but you might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that might be helpful to you. Um, most podcast apps only usually show the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll actually find the rest of them and that's going back to November 2020. Uh, if you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening um, to this on. 
And then also if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, then you might like to let them know. And if you haven't heard it on the podcast, let us know um, and we'll add it to the collection. Um, But otherwise, we will love and leave you. Happy training, happy eating, um, and we'll see you next week. Will do. See you, everyone.